listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And you know what we're talking about today because it's Monday? Money. Perhaps you should think about maybe asking for a little more money from the boss. A little later on the program, on Monday. Money. Money Monday. We're going to be talking about exactly do you, how do you ask for more cash from the boss. We'll give you some details on that. Also later on in the program. Hail Satan, the minister of sinister. A rise in the number of people declaring themselves to be Satanists. Satanism is on the rise. Why is that? But we begin with this. A new study that you heard about in the news that is just remarkable. It's a study that suggests alcohol-related health problems are posing a growing burden on Ontario emergency rooms, including a disproportionate spike in visits by women and young people. Now, that study was published today in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. It looked at patterns at alcohol-related ER visits in Ontario between 2003 and 2016. Researchers looked at several databases of provincial records, and they looked at medical and demographic demographic information for 15 million Ontario residents. And over the study period, the rate of alcohol-related ER visits by women rose 86% compared to 53% for men. Here now is lead author Daniel Murin saying the findings, findings of this study only represent the tip of the iceberg of the damage that is caused by drinking. The increases we've seen in alcohol harms are affecting everyone in society, and they're doing so in an equal way. Uh, and I think we should be very concerned about that. But what about this difference in gender? Cheryl Spithoff is an addiction medicine physician at Toronto's Women's College Hospital and says women are psychologically more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol, so it is not surprising to see that they are disproportionately suffering health consequences. It hasn't been well studied how public health policies affect uh, men and, and women differently. So it is, that is an area that needs more research and investigation, and also policymakers need to take gender into account when making you know, plans for interventions. So take all of that into account when you see that the Ontario Chamber of Commerce today, the same day, has released a report saying that the government should cut taxes and expand online alcohol sales, essentially make alcohol cheaper and more available. How does that square up with a report that says, clearly we have a problem in ERs, and disproportionately, that problem is affecting women? That report coming on that same day as that study comes out. Interesting there to see that. And to pivot just while we're standing on provincial matters, because, of course, you know, that the Ford government is pursuing an expansion of alcohol sales to convenience stores. A update on Doug Ford's former chief of staff, Dean French. Now, a lawyer for Dean French has now confirmed that the lawsuit launched against Randy Hillier, who is now sitting as an independent after being kicked out of the PC caucus, that that lawsuit has now been dropped. French, resigning from his job earlier this month, filed the lawsuit in June, alleging that shortly after Hillier was kicked out, he began a libelous and defamatory campaign against him, 
According to the government, now that French is no longer with the government, there was little point in carrying on the litigation. So, the reverberation, pardon me, from Doug French continues at, uh, at Queen's Park. When we come back a little later on in the program, we are going to get to the main issue of this Monday. Money! And how you can make more of it. Plus, later on, we will ask... Hail Satan, the Minister of Sinister! Why are so many more people joining a satanic religion, or should we call it, a cult? It's the Alan Carter Radio Program, 640 Toronto. Welcome back in uh, news over the weekend of a return to the federal fold by somebody that a lot of us in the political watchers thought was gone. And of course, that is Gerald Butts. Uh, a who is now going to be back, apparently, a Liberal Party official confirming Sunday that Trudeau's former principal secretary is going to play a key role in the party's election campaign. And the pace of that is stepping up very quickly. But a close, longtime friend of Trudeau resigned in February amid the SNC-Lavalin controversy, citing allegations from anonymous sources that he pressured former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould to assist the Quebec engineering giant, to be considered for an agreement, sort of a plea bargain. You remember all of this. Butts issuing a statement at the time saying categorically he denied the accusation that his office, or he, pressured Wilson-Raybould. In May, the party announced that Jeremy Broadhurst, the former chief of staff to Christian Freeland, will lead the national campaign to try and get Justin Trudeau re-elected. That platform committee is being co-chaired by Ralph Goodale, and Mona Fortier. Here is, pardon me, here is conservative MP Pierre Polivare speaking to the media about the reports that Mr. Butts is back. One thing is for sure. This week's news tells us a lot about Justin Trudeau. The lab scam bully is in, and the principled women who spoke truth to power are out. That's everything you need to know about Justin Trudeau's ethics. That's all you need to know. Laugh scam bully. That's just, just your takeaway. Laugh scam bully. Laugh scam bully. Money. That is, I think that's a good phrase. I think that's going to catch on. Now, keep in mind that in Ontario, which is a key battleground for any federal campaign, the leadership of Doug Ford is expected to figure prominently in the federal discussion. And the liberals are saying that they hear a strong response about Ford's policies during the door-knocking effort. So keep that in mind. That is going to play out. And I'm wondering, did your phone go off this weekend? Did you get a text from Sarah? These are making the rounds again, these uninvited texts from the conservative party. Hi, it's Sarah. I'm just texting you. You don't know me. Well, under the law, these texts are allowed, quote, generally speaking, the Canada Elections Act permits automated messages to be made by or on behalf of candidates or political parties. That is from a spokesperson for the Commissioner of Canada Elections. 
Texts and calls will only violate the act if they falsely claim to originate from Elections Canada or came from a political entity that attempted to mislead or prevent electors from voting. So, Sarah, fine. Sarah can text you. That's not an issue. Hi, Sarah. Meanwhile, a short, grainy YouTube video circulating on social media purports to show evidence of a, of a, mo- a mom pardon me, claiming that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, if he's re-elected, he will institute Sharia law. But the video is taken out of context, that according to the man featured in it, and was created by someone known for their anti-Islam views. I'm wondering if this has popped up in your feed because it already has 50,000 views on YouTube. And, of course, it is not true. And I bring those two things up, or all of those things up, just to set the table a little bit about what's coming our way. It won't be long, sad to say, that Labor Day will come and go. And then the nation will truly begin to turn its attention towards what is coming in the federal election, And will actually begin to ask itself some questions about the information it is getting and who is giving it to us. Christo Avalis is with the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council at the University of Toronto and joins me on the line. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. What do you make of what is coming our way in terms of the information we are going to be getting and whether or not that is from fake videos or whether it's a campaign designed by Mr. Butts? Well, you know, I think it's it's really putting to the test, you know, Canadians' media literacy because, you know, even in 2015, that was an election where, you know, social media played a big role. But at the end of the day, a lot of people made noise about, you know, the liberal ads during the Blue Jay games, very traditional. You know, it was, you know, the, the games aired on Sportsnet and they bought ads during peak viewership time and that was sort of the the big discussion point but this election is one in which you know the digital space is going to be so important and it's much more of a wild west and there are benefits to that because it allows voices that for whatever reason don't have access to the mainstream media marginalized voices for instance to actually get their voice to get their words out there but it requires much more i guess responsibility from the content creators but also the citizenry to know what they're listening to, to critique the source, to critique the implicit bias, to understand that even though all sources are biased, you know, the specific nature of the bias can 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 distort how a certain content is presented. And I think that's what's really going to be put to the test here is are Canadians ready to, to handle this? And, you know, the last provincial election, you know, whether it was Ontario Proud or other sources like that, I think a lot of Ontarians struggled with uh, the realities of a, a primarily digital advertising campaign. Now, contrast what we are talking about in terms of, you know, fake or real or, or where the actual origin is, and then peer inside the political operative world, because we know Mr. Butts from his uh, history here in Ontario and also at the federal level, is extremely talented in being able to craft a narrative and being able to sell it to the public. And what is going... what? I mean, what's the main thrust going to be from the other side to try and counteract that? Well, you know, it, it, you know, for for the liberals, I mean, it's a lot easier to craft a narrative when you're in opposition because um, your leader is a, a bit of a blank slate. Uh, Justin Trudeau, a lot of people read the positives onto him, which is why you know he won a, a fairly handy handy uh, election victory, and how you know early on in his term. 
the liberals were polling in the high 40s and his personal approval ratings were through the roof and jerry butts played a big part in that this time around it's going to be harder to craft a narrative because the narrative will probably be very similar from the liberals and from both the you know the left and the right they'll be attacked because i think that you know the conservatives will say that you know justin trudeau has you know sold out certain industries and he's you know he's taking canada in uncomfortable directions and i think maybe more credibly from my perspective at least is that jagmeet singh and the ndp can make a real case and say look at the very least you know giving the liberals a majority government makes them unaccountable to their own promises and so we see evidence after evidence after evidence that justin trudeau broke key promises whether it's to indigenous people or whether it's on electoral reform and, you know, he can't be trusted. And that's a good way of crafting it because it's, it's going after the fact that however nice the liberal platform may look to a anything but conservative voter, you put into question how sincere is that platform? Is it actually an election platform or is it a tool to siphon off like NDP and green votes? And I think that's the narrative you have to go at from the left in that sense. And I, you know, I spent the weekend with some friends from Burlington, some 905ers, who, you know, they really impressed upon me that Mr. Joe is not liked personally. He is personally not liked uh, in, in portions of very vote-rich 905. That was their perspective, take it or leave it. But I, I think I, what I said back to them is that eventually it is going to be a decision that Canadians will have to make. And right now they are looking at three choices. One, preening, uh, virtue signaling. Two, milk chugging. And three, an invisible NDP leader. Uh, and I just don't know where Canadians will go. Well, it's an interesting question because, you know, you're right. Justin Trudeau's popularity has taken a nosedive. And I'm not exactly sure of the the sub-regional specifics of his approval rating. But of the three main party leaders, the, an abacus poll just came out today, of the three main party leaders, both Andrew Scheer and, and, and Justin Trudeau have negative numbers, but Trudeau quite a bit more negative than Scheer. Only Jagmeet Singh is basically even on his numbers. Um, and so that raises the question of, like, not liking Justin Trudeau is that going to be enough to stop people from voting liberal? They might hold their nose and vote liberal because it's not like Andrew Scheer is liked. And Jagmeet Singh um, and is I think invisible. And in part of crafted media a narrative to a certain degree. The NDP, uh, when the liberals were the third place party, they got uh, a lot more coverage than when the NDP is the third place party. But Jagmeet Singh is sort of um, not as well known. So, the, you know, there, there is that chance that Justin Trudeau's unpopularity makes this more challenging an election for the Liberals, but it isn't, say, a death knell as it would be if, again, Andrew Scheer was, say, you know, polling plus 10 instead of minus 5 or 6 in his popularity. I think that's certainly the one silver lining the Liberals have in, in areas like the 905. Christo Avalis is with the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council at University of Toronto. Thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for having me. And I think he really summed up what I've been saying and perhaps did so better than I was able to this weekend, which is I think this is going to be a hold-your-nose election. And I think that those people who think, no, there's just no way that the liberals can come back in a majority situation, right now I think that the polls are indicating people being upset, but yet they have not been motivated to find themselves an alternative that they like. That may come yet, but it is not there as of yet.
Hail Satan, the Minister of Sinister. Well, what started out is a small, mostly virtual satanic group has since grown now over the last six years into an international movement that boasts more than 100,000 members and has 18 official chapters in the United States. It's called Satanic Temple. It's known for its provocative demonstrations for free speech and religious freedom. Awareness comes through word of mouth and the Internet, not through formal recruitment, however. But why is the Satanic Temple growing? Well, there's a fascinating article on Global News Online right now, written by Rachel Brown, and Rachel joins me on the line. Hi, Rachel. Hi there. So what is driving the growth in Satanism? Well, the the growth of the Satanic Temple is pretty interesting. Um, the group has been, it was uh, founded in the U.S., and over the last few years, they've been really active in fighting for uh, the separation of church and state, and that's taken uh, a number of different forms. Um, they've unveiled this uh sort of nine-foot-tall statue of a an occult deity, uh, Baphomet, and they identified places across the U.S. that uh, were putting governments that were putting up uh, Ten Commandments monuments. And so what they did was to sort of protest the presence of a religious or Christian uh, a statue on government grounds. They placed that statue next to the Ten Commandments statue, obviously sort of drawing a strong response from locals. Um, And they have had a few successes um, in the courts. Um, I think it was Oklahoma uh, that uh, stated that the Ten Commandments monument should be removed because it infringed upon sort of the principles of separation of church and state, and the Satanic Temple saw that as a as a win. Um, so they've sort of been been doing sort of uh, demonstrations like that across the U.S. And in April, they were granted uh, official tax exempt status as a church uh, by the IRS in the U.S. So they've had a few sort of high profile wins, um, and uh, they've made a lot of headlines for sort of the more provocative things that they've been doing in the public space. Some of this, uh, the more provocative stuff, sounds like almost, you know, out of an atheist's page uh, handbook, not necessarily Satanism. Yeah, a lot of them are atheists, uh, not all of them. Um, and it's it's a bit, uh, you know, you, you could sort of say it's a bit contradictory for a group that says they're non-theistic, uh, that they don't worship the devil, they don't see of, of the devil as a um, as an actual force, as you would sort of define it through through a biblical lens, um, but and for them to sort of call themselves a religion or a church, um, they're sort of pushing back against a lot of these typical notions that we have about religion. Um, but they 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 take their beliefs very seriously, and um, you know, for a lot of people, it may seem contradictory, but they're sort of uh, making it work, and they're sort of pushing the boundaries um, at every turn. What do we know about the growth of this in Canada specifically? In Canada, there's only one official chapter uh, that's been sanctioned by the the National or International Council, and it's in Ottawa. And it was formed there in 2016. And um, I spoke to some people who are who have been part of it from the beginning, who say that they had a handful of people show up every time they had a meeting, you know, every once in a while. But um, with the sort of media attention that the group has received over the last year, coupled with the, this documentary that's come out that's followed the group, it's called Hail Satan. Um, a lot of people have expressed interest in it uh, in Canada, and they've 
started opening up uh, chapters across the country. So while there's only one official chapter that's in Ottawa, um, they're now trying to get a handle on all of these sort of unofficial groups that have popped up that are trying to get official recognition from the temple. Um, So they say that there's hundreds of Canadians that have uh, expressed interest in in starting their own groups and joining the movement. Um, So they're now trying to sort of sift through that and sort of vet the groups as they form. This seems to me like almost a giant joke, like we're being punked somehow, because like you say, this is not a religion per se. I mean, do they really get together in robes and and chant things and all that sort of stuff? They sure do. Um, They have their own set of rituals that are not uh, required. They say members aren't required to take part in them, but they have um, regular... um, events such as an unbaptism, which is, as you can imagine, the opposite of a baptism, where they will get in robes, they'll chant, they'll have ceremony and read, uh, you know, read from texts, um, and then people will, will, you know, put water or other things on on people to unbaptize unbaptize them if they were, you know, baptized as children into uh, the Christian faith um, and and things like that. And then later join us in the church basement for finger sandwiches. Because that's the way it usually ends. <laughs> yeah. So what is the future for this organization? Is, it, it, is this, again, because, do you believe, because of you know, the documentary that you mentioned, that just sort of this push, I think, towards atheism and a lot of portions of life, people pushing back against the Christian tradition and this assumption that these things are out there. Is this just sort of you know, counterculture sort of thing and it will have its moment? Or, or do you believe that this is a, a greater... Uh, trend that will continue? I think that remains to be seen. You know, with any sort of new religious movement, you can never really tell if it's going to take off and it's going to sort of stand the test of time. Um, uh, I mean, over the last six years, the growth has been it has been pretty intense. The, they've grown from sort of a handful of people online in chat rooms to over 100,000 people with chapters across the U.S. Now in Canada, they're forming. In Europe, they've sort of taken root. Um, and I think that that's, it's a pretty successful growth in terms of um, any sort of satanic church that we've seen uh, in modern times. Um, so I think that growth is of note. Um, and I talked to a, a scholar of modern Satanism who said that, you know, if the group continues to sort of latch on to topics of the day, things that are relevant for people, you know, like they they talk about abortion and the separation of church and state, um, if they keep doing that and making themselves relevant, there's a better chance that they'll have more success in terms of sustaining the growth and the membership in the future. But I think, you know, if a religion is sort of uh, pegging its growth to a documentary or things that are, you know, that are not as, don't have as long, long longevity, then I think they're at risk of either plateauing or, you know, sort of fizzling out. Rachel Brown is a journalist, journalist with globalnews.ca, and you can read her article, The Rise of the Satanic Temple in Canada, on globalnews.ca right now. Thanks, Rachel. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, shall we play something? Shall we maybe from the hymnal? If we could, from the Satan's Hymnal, Satan's Hymnal uh, Song 147. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Hail Satan, the minister of sinister.
Welcome back to the program, and as promised, on the top of the program this this morning, I guess it was actually this afternoon when it began, uh, today is Monday, so we are talking about Money. money and how to get more. Here, top three things to do if you are going to ask for a raise. This according to Vancouver-based career coach Rebecca Beaton, who says asking for a raise is not a casual conversation. This is not a one-off in the hallway. You don't do what I do when you run into Doug Murphy, who is the CEO, of course, in the bathroom and go, dude, how about a bit of a bump? You don't ask. You don't do that. Here's what you do. One, you pick the right time, as I say. Pick the right time. These are the top three things to do, according to Vancouver-based career coach Rebecca Beaton, to get more cash. Pick the right time. Make sure you get a one-on-one. Number two, come prepared. Have a reason why you should get more money and have a clear salary in your mind. Don't know how much money you should ask for? Check out websites like Glassdoor or Payscale. Google those, they'll give you a sense of what you should be earning, what others in your field are earning. And three, be professional. Don't do things like, say, I need the money because I got a sick relative or I got to pay for my mortgage. Those are not effective arguments. The argument that is effective is outlining why it is you are being underpaid and undercompensated for what you are doing and what it is that you will do in the future. And if they say no, don't throw a hissy. Do not throw a hissy. Just play it cool and be pro, and I promise you, money will come your way. Quickly, some other stories about what happened on this day in history. Did you know in 1847... The Mormons founded Salt Lake City. In 1864, General Sherman captured Atlanta. In 1934, FBI agents shot and killed John Dillinger. In 1948, Newfoundlanders voted narrowly in a referendum to join Confederation. In 2003, Uday and Kuse Hussein Sons of the ousted Iraqi President Saddam Hussein were killed by U.S. troops. In 2013, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William and Kate, welcomed the birth of their first child, George Alexander. He is now six. Of course, the anniversary that we are marking today is more somber. It was a year ago that 10-year-old Juliana Kozis and 18-year-old Reese Fallon were fatally shot when a man made his way down the popular Toronto neighborhood on the Danforth, spraying bullets at bystanders. Thirteen others were injured. He later exchanged gunfire with police, was found dead nearby. It may be a somber anniversary, but it also, as I've been saying this hour, is a reason to celebrate, to celebrate that neighborhood, to celebrate the fact that we continue to live our lives as Torontonians. And Jamie Marocker is a global news reporter and is covering this for us tonight and will have part of our ongoing coverage on Global News. She joins me on the line. Hi, Jamie. How's it going, Alan? It's going good. What are people telling you in that neighborhood today? So 
I have been covering the business angle and, and, you know, customers going into businesses, I can tell you even midday, it is extremely busy here. People, like you said, are living their lives. I'm just watching a woman walk by right now with a Danforth Strong shirt on. So it is top of mind. Uh, remembering what took place a year ago, but people really are trying to push forward. Businesses have their doors open. I will say this, a lot of the business owners didn't want to talk about what took place, but we did find some who say it's important to remember, to not forget what happened, but to make sure that people know that this is Toronto, this is Greek town, and these small businesses are still full of life and vibrancy. And is that the overwhelming sentiment is that it's not that we've forgotten what happened a year ago. It's just that we choose not to have it impact the way we conduct ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I, one business owner, for example, I spoke with who is the manager at 10,000 Villages, just a really small store, about 50 meters from uh, where Juliana actually was shot, uh, said that for about 10 days, the strip was extremely quiet. He lives in the area. He said that people were hesitant to come back to the Danforth, and he was really concerned that there would be a change that they wouldn't be able to recover from here in Greek Town. But he says a year later, it has proved to be extremely resilient that people continue to come out and support the small businesses. And you have to remember that day uh, was Taste of the Danforth, and that's what all what Taste of the Danforth is all about: supporting these mom and pop shops, these small businesses, and restaurants. Um, that really make this community so special. So they wanted to ensure that that wasn't taken away, and it appears a year later that it's not, that it's still busy, people are still enjoying their lunchtime, um, and they're still celebrating what Greek Town has to offer. And for these store owners, I mean, you know, they were there that night. They saw yeah. patrons and people running and ducking for cover inside their stores. There has to be, to some extent, uh, a, a lingering worry, a lingering trauma for all. Oh, yeah, I'm sitting out in front of a store right now that actually had a group of children, a children's party inside um, at the time last year, and they had to go hide in the basement. Uh, you have to remember that the cafe where 10-year-old Juliana Kosas was shot was an extremely popular dessert cafe. So there was lots of kids there as well. And for people who have spoken and had spoken in the past um, about their experiences, it was, of course, traumatizing. It was traumatizing to see, to be a part of, um, to have to help, you know, the people who were injured, that sort of thing. But today, it's not so much about experiencing that trauma again. It's about, um, you know, honoring those two who lost their lives, remembering what took place, but moving forward really strong. And that's what Danforth Strong is all about. And, of course, we have that event tonight, which takes place uh, just after 8 o'clock tonight to actually mark the uh, one-year anniversary. Give us a sense of what we'll see as part of your coverage tonight on Global News, Jamie. Well, I'm going to be uh, at Chester and Danforth, uh, which is where that shooter opened up fire, I think, about seven times he uh, shot his gun in that area. So we're talking to business owners in the area, how they have turned um, the corner coming up on this one year. I don't want to call it an anniversary, but a remembrance, we'll say. Um, we're speaking to community people, um, just those who are walking around and, and how they feel a year later, that sort of thing. And then, of course, we'll have Karen Lieberman. She is going to be giving you the coverage of what's taking place on uh, that one-year remembrance. Jamie Marocker is a global news reporter, and as you can see, and pardon me, as we've been talking about, you can see her report beginning at 5.30 tonight and then simulcast on this radio station at 6. Thank you so much, Jamie. No problem, man. 
It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. Tom Hanks again. Kind of the theme of the day. It is a beautiful day in that Danforth neighborhood. Not an anniversary per se. I think Jamie summed that up beautifully, didn't she? Something to remember, but something also to celebrate today. As we mark one year since the tragedy on the Danforth. I have a couple of more minutes, and I want to quickly tell you about a couple of quick stories. This one, a Titanic survivor's walking stick with an electric light she used to signal for help from a lifeboat has now sold at auction. How much would you pay for such a thing? Well, the pre-auction estimate was $300,000 to $500,000. It went for sixty-two k. So it's a bargain. That's a cheap stick right there. I will take you to California now, where in Santa Rosa, California, piglets are out and watermelons are in when it comes to an agricultural fair being held in California next month. The Sonoma County Fair has decided to, quote-unquote, scrapple the pig scramble event from its annual Farmer's Day competition. Now, in the event... Youngsters would chase and try to catch piglets weighing from 40 to 60 pounds. But now, the event is going to feature kids carrying watermelons slicked with vegetable oil around an obstacle course. The newspaper, the local newspaper, says fair officials decided to get rid of the pigs because of animal welfare concerns. You just can't have any fun now. Now you can't have kids chase grease pigs? What is wrong with that? Now they're carrying watermelons? That ain't right. And our last story, as we circle back to the Satanists, 100 gravestones in Denmark have been found vandalized with graffiti. Several of the gravestones had 666 written on them in black spray paint. Church staff noticed the vandalism early Sunday. The motive for the vandalism remains unclear, according to official results or official reports, but I think... I have a pretty good idea. Hail Satan, the Minister of Sinister. The Minister of Sinister is responsible for this. Money. 